Dear Jesus, thank you so much for rising from the dead. You didn't have to do that. You chose to do that, God, by God's great design, by your Father's great design. You chose to come and die for me, for little old me. But you saw me as great and big and worth it. And so today as we celebrate your resurrection, I thank you for every heart, every soul that is in this room, every person who is here seeking good news, wanting to hear the good news of the resurrection and why it matters. So God, focus us now on your great good news, on the power of your word. In your name we pray and together we say amen and amen. Do you know anytime you say amen at church, it means I agree with that. Do you guys know that? So anytime you hear something you like, you can say amen. It's totally okay. If you say amen twice, that means I totally really agree with that. So we have people say amen, 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 amen here. Just relax. Make yourselves at home. Hey, I'm Pastor Mike. If you're all business or just Mike, it's a pleasure to be worshiping with everyone in the room today. I'd invite you, if you would, pull your smartphone. We love these things here. We work them all through the service. In fact, when you did your check-ins a few minutes ago, if you want to keep your phone out, and open up to a little app we call YouVersion, Y-O-U version. You can find the Bible there on demand in any version you want to use. And what we'd like to do is focus on a companion scripture to the one that Linda read for us a couple minutes ago. It's in the same letter from the Apostle Paul, and this is 1 Corinthians chapter 15. So pull your phone, or if you've got the Bible, the actual paper Bible, yes, those still do exist. If you've got the paper Bible with you, turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 15. What I'd like to do is read a companion scripture for you as we dig in to the story of what happened on Resurrection Day and why that is complete and utter nonsense in the world. The story of the resurrection is foolishness to the world. Now, I don't know about you, but when you celebrated Easter, uh, Easter egg, hunts over the years, you probably didn't have anybody super gluing your Easter eggs together, did you? If somebody had done that to you, they might have pulled a cruel trick on you and turned your Easter holiday into a cruel joke. Some people believe Christianity is a cruel joke as well. Some people believe that putting faith in somebody who allowed himself to be killed on a cross 2,000 years ago, and then, gasp of all gasps, chose to rise again from the grave and be seen, is utterly audacious. It is foolish. It's as foolish as the idea of somebody giving you a glued together Easter egg and then watching you struggle over trying to pry it open. Sometimes for many of us, faith in Jesus, as it's presented, presents the same kind of frustration. It's like there's a prize inside of the thing, but it's glued shut and I can't get to it. I can't understand it. So what we're going to do today is we're going to dive into an audacious story, a ridiculous story, a story of a man who appeared weak and went to death willingly, but then by great power rose again from the grave. How many days later? Three days later. That message is almost universally known but we're gonna see how God 
applies it to our lives. So I'd invite you to follow along with the scripture with me. I do not have it on the screen. If you've got your phone or Bible, you can track along that way. Paul says, now brothers and sisters, which is a family term. Paul is preaching to people who he has considered family because they've joined together in faith in Jesus. Did you know when you do that, you join together with other people and you become bonded with them as family? This is unique uh, to our church and to our gathering. We consider each other brothers and sisters. Paul says, I want to remind you of the gospel I preach to you. What is gospel? Gospel is good news. I remind you of the gospel I preach to you, which you received and on which you have taken your stand. Your stand against what? Against falsehood and things that are not true. Paul says that the gospel of Jesus is the true gospel. It is the true message. And so stick with that. Adhere to that. By this gospel you are saved, he says, if you hold firmly to the word I preached to you, as opposed to other words that are preached to people trying to save them. Paul says, otherwise, if you don't hold to this word, your belief is in vain. Have you ever had somebody play an April Fool's joke on you? Today's April Fool's Day. Welcome to April Fool's Day and Easter Sunday, all bundled up into one. Have you ever had anybody play an April Fool's joke on you? How does it make you feel? Like a fool, doesn't it? When it happens to you, you're like, man. But the other person's laughing, right? And people around you are laughing. The person who has the joke played on them doesn't feel so good about that sometimes, right? Kind of feel foolish, hence the name April Fool's Day. But Paul says, be warned. If you put your faith in a gospel or in a message from someone that isn't true, you could be fooled. And when does that fooling come? I would submit that we are fooled by putting faith in gospels that are not the true gospel. We are fooled by that and the consequences of that through our entire lives. We struggle with understanding how to navigate through our lives because we tend to want to try to follow gospels other than the one that we're preaching here today, other than the one that's been preached for 2,000 years, that Jesus died for me, for you, and then rose again three days later for you and for me. And then after that, the scripture says, very pointedly, he began to appear. Now, if you're following along with me, take a look at verse three in the scripture, which says this, for what I received, the good news of Jesus, I passed on to you as of first importance, that Christ died for our sins. And then he says, according to the scriptures. So what does that mean? We're going to look at that in a second. And then he says that he was buried and raised on the third day, also according to the scriptures. He makes a point that those first two activities that Jesus engaged in were according to the scriptures, which means they were written about before Jesus was even born. And again, we'll go there in another minute or two. And then he also says that he was raised on the third day and appeared to Kephas. This is another name for Peter, the apostle Peter. And then to the 12. These are the disciples who would become apostles, people who would turn and spread the faith and began to plant churches. The scripture says in verse six, after that, he appeared to more than 500 of the brothers and sisters at the same time, most of whom are still living, 
Now, this is when this letter was being written sometime in the first century A.D., most of the brothers and sisters at the same time were presented with this information, but they had also seen Jesus come back to life. Now, let me ask you a question. If it had not really happened, would 500 people have really seen Jesus? If just 12 people had seen Jesus, then they could have gotten together behind the scenes and concocted a story about him rising from the dead, couldn't they? But the Bible bears testimony that more than 500 people actually saw the guy in flesh and blood after he rose again from the grave. Now that's foolishness, isn't it? For somebody to rise from the grave and then be seen by 500 people, why would he do that? Why would he appear to so many people and not just the 12 that he was hanging out with all, to, all the time, his small group? The Bible says those brothers and sisters he appeared to many of whom are still living, though some have fallen asleep, the Bible says, and we know that to mean that they've died. They just grew old and died. But then verse 7, he appeared to James and all the apostles, and last he appeared to me, the apostle Paul, as to one abnormally born. This is a weird phrase that basically means as to one who was just born later than the rest of the pack, sort of like the runt. Paul's kind of calling himself the runt of the litter. But if we look back over this passage and see these key phrases where Jesus went to the grave and died according to the scripture, here's one of the scriptures that we're referring to. And this is a scripture that would have been written about 700 years before Jesus was even born. Look at what it says. Surely he took up our pain and bore our suffering, yet we considered him punished by God, stricken by him and afflicted, but he was pierced for our transgressions, which refers to those, those railroad ties going through these bones here. Like if you pull your arm out and see those two tendons that kind of pop up right there, pull your arm out, and put your finger right between them. That's where that railroad tie would have gone to put him on the cross. That's where he was pierced. Go ahead and try it. See, that's where that railroad tie would have gone. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was on him, and by his wounds, we are healed. The idea simply becomes this. The idea becomes, foolishly, we like sheep have gone astray, and each one of us has turned to our own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Now, iniquity is kind of a churchy word, but think about this for a minute. God took the iniquity of all of us and placed it on Jesus. There was like a switch that happened on the cross. Jesus was up on the cross and all of our iniquity landed on him and all of his holiness landed on who? On us. It was a substitution. It was a switch out. Now, what does iniquity mean? That's a great churchy word. So I took the liberty of looking it up on Google, which is what you want to do anytime you don't know anything, right? <laughs> So here's what iniquity means. It means immoral or grossly unfair behavior, wickedness, sinfulness, immorality, impropriety, vice, evil, sin, villainy, criminality, odiousness, atrocity, egregiousness, outrage, monstrosity, obscenity, reprehensibility, and turpitude. Can you say turpitude with me, please? Turpitude. That's my favorite. So the turpitude of us all was laid foolishly upon Jesus. And then what happened? Then the Bible said, foolishly, he did what none of us has been able to do since 
He rose from the grave. Here's what the apostle Peter says in Acts chapter 2, quoting King David. Peter says this, God raised Jesus from the dead, freeing him from the agony of death because it was impossible for death to keep his hold on him. This is why Jesus always was going to rise from the dead. It wasn't plan B. It wasn't an accident. It wasn't God pivoting because the plan didn't go well. Jesus was always going to rise from the dead. It was always going to be that way from the beginning. And here's what, that, here's what the scripture goes on to say. David is quoted in, uh, in Psalms by, P, by Peter saying this, I saw the Lord always before me because he is at my right hand and will not be shaken. Therefore, my heart is glad and my tongue rejoices. My body also will rest in hope because you will not abandon me to the realm of the dead. You will not let your Holy One see decay. How much hope do you rest in this morning on resurrection day? When you are faced with the idea of your own demise someday, your own death, your own passing, how much hope do you have going into that prospect? Do you have the hope of resurrection before you? Do you know beyond a shadow of a doubt that one day you will rise from the dead and meet Christ in the clouds? Do you hear how foolish that sounds? It sounds ridiculous, doesn't it? But could that foolishness be true? You know, after that, the scripture says that Jesus appeared to all these people. He appeared to James and he appeared to Peter and he appeared to the 12 and he appeared to 500 of these people. And in fact, what we believe and teach and confess in these days and times is that even in spite of the foolishness of that message, that somebody would have the audacity to let himself be killed for me and then rise again from the grave for me, Jesus still appears to this day in the same way that he appeared to them back then, though for us, it's mainly Jesus appearing through the scriptures. He appeared before he was born in Isaiah and in the Psalms of David. He appeared at the time he was born as a little baby and then grew up sinlessly and went to the cross for us and then went into the ground for us and then reappeared for us. And then to this day, 2,000 years later, Jesus continues to appear to us. And the main way he does that is through the Bible. It's through the story that's presented in the Bible. And the story is this, in a nutshell. If you could completely wrap up the story of the Bible in a nutshell, it would be this. God made us. God lost us, God rescued us, and God rebooted us. He made us, he lost us, he rescued us through Jesus, and he rebooted us. He remade us, he restarted us. We find this story in the scriptures, though many of us will often allow the scriptures to sit on the shelf and gather dust. Many of us choose not to hear the story of how God created and then lost and then redeemed and then restarted us because they don't want to see the truth of this unpeel before them in the pages of the Bible. 
If you ever need to see evidence of Jesus, read his life in the scriptures. Start with the Gospel of John. Read the whole thing through, and you will begin to see Jesus in everyday life. You will begin to see him in the hands and the feet, in the hearts, in the minds, and in the voices of those who love him and follow him. You see, this was the great miracle of the resurrection. When Jesus appeared to 500 people, what he was doing is he was starting something new. And in fact, he was starting something that was meeting a need in people that they didn't even realize. They needed to have a family that went beyond their own physical family. They needed to have a family that was eternal, a family they could bind together with and share life with and do life with. And as he, he started with this 500 group and the 12 that he'd raised up as leaders, he deployed them into the whole world and the faith began to spread like wildfire. And in fact, even today, millions and millions of Christians worldwide still meet on Easter Sunday morning and lift up the good news of Jesus Christ 2,000 years after it started. Foolishness in some people's eyes. Many of us outside the faith look at that message and say, that's just crazy, it's ridiculous. One of those was the Apostle Paul. So before he became the Apostle Paul, his name was Saul, and his job was to persecute Christians, which means he would round up men, women, and children, throw them into prison, and God only knows what would happen to them after that. Sometimes they were used as lion food in the Colosseum in Rome. This was Paul's job before he became the Apostle Paul. And then one day, the Bible will tell you, the Apostle Paul was struck by the Lord Jesus on the road to Damascus. He was knocked off his horse and made blind, and his life was turned. His life was changed, and he began to write letters like this one that we're reading. He began to plant churches. But the problem the Apostle Paul had was that he saw all these people binding together after this guy, Jesus, who had died and was resurrected, supposedly, and were banding together and were following him around, even though he apparently had risen into the sky. Foolishness. Look at what Paul says about himself in your reading. If you're tracking with me, this is verse 9. He says, For I am the least of the apostles and do not even deserve to be called an apostle or a church planter, because I persecuted the church. I beat up on the church. But he says, By the grace of God, I am what I am. And his grace to me was not without effect. His grace to me was not without effect. The grace of God fell on him and produced an effect. Do you see the double negative there? His grace to me had an effect. It changed me. He says, no, I worked harder than all of them, but not I. The grace of God that was with me. And he says, whether then it is I or they, this is what we preach and this is what you believed. You see, Paul knew that God could take somebody who was killing Christians for a living and change his life so dramatically that it would have such an effect that only God could receive the glory for all the great things that would be done. And so he, as he would go and as he would build the family of God and the family of God would grow through Paul's ministry, he began to get the very message 
that is the key to the resurrection story. The idea that it is not up to you or me to please God. In fact, the Bible says you can't please God. Not a single one of us in this room can please him. Nothing we can do can ever be good enough for God. You might look at that in despair, but that's actually the good news. The good news is this. We cannot please God. Jesus can. And the pleasure God finds in Jesus, he puts that on you and me. He looks at his son on the cross and he sees you and me there. And he switches us out. He gives the holiness of Jesus to you and me as a free gift. And the power of Jesus rising from the grave is not just a one-time event. It's a power that carries us through life every single day. I don't know if you feel that power. I don't know if you feel that hope or not. But on this day, by the grace of God, Paul has it in the kingdom of heaven. And so do you. And so do I. It is a gift that comes without cost to you and me. And that's just foolishness. It's crazy. Why would God do such a thing? Why would he hatch such a strange plan? Look at what Paul says elsewhere. Back up in chapter 1. For since in the wisdom of God, the world through its wisdom did not know him, God was pleased through the foolishness of what was preached, which I just shared with you, God was pleased through the foolishness of that message to save those who would believe. Now, what does that mean? That means more than just when you die, you go to heaven. Folks, the Christian life isn't just about dying and going to heaven. The Christian life is about living in the kingdom of God right here, right now together, you and me, together, like family. I would submit that every single person in this room, including the smallest and youngest of us, longs for this, wants this, hopes for it, dreams of it, perhaps if we don't even know it. I want to share with you a clip of a video of a pretty famous singer who took his own life last year. I don't know if you're a fan of Soundgarden or Audio Slave. The guy's name was Chris Cornell, had one of the most beautiful rock and roll voices in the world. Here's a song he wrote about this idea. Track along with this with me.
Do you ever feel like you're waiting on God alone? That's not a foreign feeling. In fact, it's quite common. That is the real good news of the resurrection. You and I don't wait for God alone. We don't wait for Christ to return on the clouds alone. We wait together. We serve together. We live together in the same town. We small group together. We worship together. We text each other. We call each other. We connect with each other. This is why we spend the first 10 minutes of every worship gathering just eating donuts and talking to each other. This is why we break down for 10 minutes and debrief on what God's doing in our life and the lives of others around us. Because us being together is the most important message of the day. It's everything. And yet many Christians walk away from Resurrection Day thinking that the faith is only about me. It is not. It is about us together, all of us. This is why we are here. This is why Jesus came out of the grave. He came out of the grave changing the way we dealt with each other. This is why he taught us how to be with other people because there is an us together. This is why he calls us out of our own graves, out of our own aloneness, out of our own darkness, out of our own despair, so that together we are close to him. This is why he works in us and shares his good news not only to us, but through us to other people who still live in their own graves, who still live in the darkness of their own despair. This is why he calls us out. This is why he gives us a brand new life. There was a historian back in Jesus' time, about 30 years after Jesus ascended into heaven. His name was Josephus. He was not a Christian. He was a Jew. He wrote about Jewish and Roman history. And in fact, he wrote chapters and chapters of history in these paragraphs that just go on and on with specific details. And tucked right in the middle of some of his writings, it's like chapter 18 of one of his books, there's this little paragraph, and I'm going to read it for you. It says, although on the accusation of the first man among us, the Jewish leaders, Pilate condemned him, Jesus, to the cross, those who adhered at first did not cease. His disciples who were with him in the beginning did not stop. I want you to catch that. For he appeared to them on the third day, living again, as the divine prophets had spoken, these and myriad of other wonders about him. And still to this day, the tribe of Christians named after him has not failed. Now, there are some historians that say that some Christians went and added some Christianese to this little snippet that was found in Josephus' writings. We don't know whether or not that's true. Some of this could have been added later by Christians to Christian it up a little bit. We don't know. But the last sentence for sure hasn't been touched. And that's what I want you to hear today. The tribe of Christians named after him has not failed. Now, folks, why? Why? Why, why, why? 2,000 years after something as foolish and ridiculous as the resurrection story would sound, why 2,000 years later is there still a church following Jesus around? Why is there a church meeting in a public school? Why are we doing this? Because he lives. 
and in him I live. He comes out of the grave, and in him I come out of the grave. Because he lives in you, and you come out of the grave. Whether or not you feel like it, whether you not think it's true, Christ died for you and rose again and brings life. Look at this one scripture from Isaiah 60 as we close. Arise, shine, for your light has come, and the glory of the Lord rises upon you. I'd invite you to pray with me now. We're going to invite the children back in. I'd ask you to open your heart to the Lord and hear a message that is very clear. Let him speak to you like he's never spoken to you before. And as we pray, let him work on your heart. Let him bring you out of your own grave because that's what Jesus is in the business of. Resurrection. Your death is not final. God raises the dead. And you and I are raised together to live together for that purpose. Would you pray with me? Dear Jesus, thank you so much for all you did. And thank you so much for all you do. You are still alive. And we still follow you all these years later, even as foolish as that might look to a world who doesn't follow you. We follow by your power. We confess, God, that sometimes we like to push you away and push the message of your resurrection away and try to solve our own problems and do our own life without your guidance. God, we lay that confession before you and ask that you wipe it away in the blood of Jesus that you start every one of us over with a brand new life, but not to its own end, to the end that we bind together as a family, that we find each other, that we serve each other, and we lift each other up, that we pray for each other, that we serve in your name. So come and rescue us again as you do every single day, not because of what we do, but because of what has been done. You have done it. And we thank you and we worship you and we praise you for redeeming us. Come and speak now through the words of the song. In your name we pray and together we say, amen.